Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Sitting here right next to me, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, hello. Baseball is happening. Are you excited? It is an exciting time of year, to say the least. I'm excited just to watch the data actually start coming in because I got sick of looking at 2015 data. And now we're seeing new things come in. But we'll get to that in a little bit. We will get to that. We're going to get later in the show, we're going to get to our hardest hit and longest home run and, and best everything based on two days of data. Uh, but joining us now, we're very excited. We've got Alex Cora on the phone with us. Alex Cora played 14 years in Major League Baseball for six teams. He's now an analyst for ESPN. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no problem. Thank you for the invita- invitation. Let's talk some baseball, huh? Absolutely. Uh, so, Alex, you were just at the Sabre presentation in Arizona, and uh, I was there as well. Uh, unfortunately, our paths didn't cross, but you gave uh, a really interesting panel on uh, defensive metrics. So, uh, for most of our listeners probably weren't there to see that. Do you want to just give us a quick overview of uh, the kinds of stuff you got into? Well, um, it was it was very interesting. You know, when I was telling, you know, my colleagues and friends, you know, that I was going to go to a Saving metric convention, they look at me like, "What? What are you doing?" But you know, I think I think it's something that uh, you know, it was a privilege to be there. It was something that uh, I really wanted to do to you know learn a little bit more about the game that you know, I'm working in and you know the, the game I play and uh, I played. So now, um, obviously, I didn't play 13 years in the big league because uh, I hit two, 330 and hit 700 home runs. You know, I survived playing defense and. One of the things that always intrigued me was defensive positioning. Um, I, I, I always thought that, um, you know, for guys that are not as quick or have such natural ability to play defense, I think moving around and playing in the right spots, it was very important. So, you know, just going through data and, and watching, you know, from, from where I'm at now the last three years working at ESPN, I learned that uh, – you know, defensive shifting works, you know, and you put guys in the right, in the right place, it, it, it's an advantage. But at the same time, there's other things that comes with defensive shifting that we have to pay attention to. And, and one of the things that I came up with, you know, and I was looking at, it was turning the whole place. So we got into a little bit of a debate there. You know, we talk about it. I think uh, a lot of people, you know, like the, the, the points that I brought up in the convention, and it was great. It was a fun experience. Now, when you say that, that shifting causes some issues with double plays, well, what do you mean by that? Is that because it's if guys are in unfamiliar positions, maybe they're at a different angle, they have to throw the ball in a way they're not used to? Yes, it's, it's 
a combination of both. I think uh, organizations are obviously doing a better job practicing and, and, and from, from these spots that they want players to be on. But it's, it's something different for players, you know, since you were a little kid, whenever, you know, there was a minute first and no outs, one out, whatever, you have to turn on the play, it was two steps forwards and two steps to, towards the back. And that was your position. And, you know, we are creatures of habits, and that's what we've been doing since we are five, six, seven years old. So it's, it's, it's a little bit awkward, a little bit hard for infielders to, to move around and try to make plays from certain spots. It's something that in the past they will put you in a spot, but you never practice, you know. You, you never took ground balls in those spots in spring training or, or throughout the season. You never turned all plays. Um, like, for example, you have a shortstop playing on the other side of the back, but the other side, obviously, at second base, they hit a ground ball to, to the second baseman who's playing the hole, so you have to backpedal to the back to try to turn the whole play, and uh, that, that's hard to do. Also, other plays that might put you in a spot that you're not used to is balls in the gap, balls down the line with men at first, you know, cut off and relays. That's a tough one because I think teams have to make a better job or make an adjustment of who's going to be the lead the lead cutoff guy, who's going to be the trailer, who's, who's going to go out in certain balls, you know, let's say left center, you know, if the third baseman is going to stay at third base, is he going to go out for the relay? So there's a lot of things that go on with shifting. It's not only put the second baseman playing short field, right field, whatever, and make the play. There's other stuff that comes into, into consideration. So, you know, I thought, you know, we talk a little bit about that and, and people understood, understood the point I was trying to make. Now, when you talk about shifting, you know, it's really changed the game. But in your view, if you were putting together a team, does that change the way you would actually pick the players in the field? Uh, for example, yeah. a, a first baseman, you can't really have that big hulking slugger type anymore. He's got to be quicker to get back to the base if he's positioned off of it. Yes, we, uh, I talked a little bit about that. They asked me what's, you know, what what do you need from infielders now with all the position. And, and I went through, through, the, through, the, through the infield positions. You know, the first baseman, you're playing him more towards that uh, – hole in between first and second base, well, that guy has to be very quick to first base. He has to be somebody very explosive to his left. That's what I meant. And uh, also, you need a guy that it's not only, like you said, that hit home, hit home runs and have, uh, doesn't have soft hands. You, you need a guy that can pick up throws because you're going to play the second baseman in an upward position, the shortstop probably a little bit more in the hole, the third baseman deeper. So there's going to be some tough throw, throws that you have to pick up. So I'd rather have a, a guy that is quick to his left and has soft hands that can pick up the throws, you know, kind of like Eric Hosmer, I guess. You know, he's pretty good at it. Um, the second baseman, usually you put the guy with the weakest arm at second base and, and he has some quick feet, quick hands to turn the whole place. But now he has to be, you know, has to have a, an average arm. You know, it can be a below average arm. And also he has to be very quick. Um, Sprint to, to, you know, it's going to be in, in that right field spot that you have to sprint to get that slow roller from left-handed uh, hitters. So you need somebody very quick that can do that. Also, fairly quick to his right. And obviously, you know, like I said, with the throwing arm, he has to be a lot better than he used to. Uh, the shortstop has to be a great athlete, obviously, going to his left, to his right. Uh, strong arm. You're going you're gonna to be put in, in spots that, you're not used to, especially with the throws. You know, most of the time you're going to be playing the 5.5 hole in between third base and the shortstop. So you have to, you have to have a strong arm. But 
let's be realistic. Usually, you know, and not because I came up as a shortstop, you know, you put the best, best athlete at shortstop, you're going to be okay. It used to be that way in the 70s, in the 80s, and nowadays it's the same thing. At third base, um, you might have, you know, not, not, I'm not saying you need a shortstop, uh, a guy with the, with the characteristic of a shortstop, but close enough. If you have a guy that he's, average or slightly below average at a shortstop, that guy can play third, third base. He's not the slow guy, just like the first baseman that used to hit 30 or 100 home runs. You need a guy that can move because sometimes he's just going to play shortstop because of the positioning. Sometimes he's got to play second base. All depends what you want to do um, with him. And uh, that's that's what I will ask from, from my perfect infield. We don't have that, but there's there's a team out there that they're pretty – Pretty close to that is the Kansas City Royals. Uh, I think the only guy that, you know, is a little bit below average and, and he's very sure-handed is Omar Infante, but besides that, they're pretty solid. And, you know, you can do a lot of stuff with them. They don't do it because they're they're pretty solid at what they do, but kind of like the Kansas City Royals, the type of infield I would love to have at the big league level. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up Eric Hosmer because we just, uh, we just uh, had him set a record for the fastest home to first base time, any first baseman, uh, and he was the fastest first baseman on record from last year. So I, I know we were looking at base running, but I think that really goes to what you're talking about, the, the flexibility in the field, and that really kind of helps with the new way of, uh, of defensive shifting. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, you played for a long time in the big leagues. Was there ever any shifting data presented to you while you were playing? I know it's obviously a big deal in the last couple of years, but, you know, you're career span kind of a really interesting analytical period in baseball. Is that something that ever came up? No, no data. The only data we have, it was Barry Bonds. He would hit homer, so you <laughs> move the second baseman <laughs> back there. I think that's where we started, but, you know, um, like, I can't remember a scouting report just showing me, you know, charts that said, hey, uh, this guy hits ground balls in the hole 75% of the time, or whenever he hits a ground ball, he hits it in the spot 75% of the time. You know, I wish you know, it was it was there for us, or people would look a little bit ahead. I know, but it wasn't that case. It was more about, um, you know, in, in scouting reports, it was like straight up pull, light pull. That's it. And uh, from there, you made adjustments. One thing, you know, and I, I got to give credit to Jim Riggleman. He's the bench coach of the Cincinnati Reds. He was our bench coach in uh, 2003, 2004 with the LA Dodgers. He was the guy that convinced me and. Uh, Caesar is tourist to play more pool than usual when uh, there was a left-handed hitter and a man at first base. Uh, and this is kind of like common sense. As a hitter with men at first, what are you going to try to do? You're going to try to get a pitch in the inside part of the play or down in the zone so you can shoot in that uh, hole in between first and second. So if they're going to try to do that and our pitcher is going to try to get sinkers, you know, to get ground balls to play, why don't play the second baseman? more pull and try to you know, defend that hole. So if that was, you know, if that was the beginning of me saying like, wow, you know, this makes sense. You know, you, you can overplay guys and you can not be scared of uh, not turning the whole place or, or just make sure you communicate to, to, to let the third baseman know and the shortstop that I'm way over. Give me some time so we can turn it, you know, but uh, that was actually the beginning. It, it kind of like opened my eyes. I was like, Oh, okay, this works. You know, in the beginning I was, kind of scared because as a second baseman, the first thing you want to do in a ground ball to the right, to the left side is to get to the back as soon as possible. But in the position I was in, I was like, I don't think I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it to second base, but, 
You know, if they hit it the other way, slow is um, soft contact. So it it would it, it was giving me plenty of time to get to second base. So I made the adjustment. So I started believing in this. Yeah, no, it definitely seems like getting players to buy in is one of the biggest uh, issues that managers and coaches face. And I've noticed that. You know, a couple of pitchers, uh, notably Clayton Kershaw and uh, I think last year A.J. Burnett, have kind of been on record saying they don't, they don't like when, when fielders shift behind them. How would you approach a pitcher who, who said, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't want any shifting going on behind me? I don't think it's not the case of, you know, like, I don't want it. You know, I, I think you got to show the data. And at the end of the day, you know, I'd rather have a pitcher very comfortable on the mound and believing on what he's doing, you know, but at the same time, there's certain situations that, you know, the data is there, you know, and, and, and like a guy like Barry Bonds, you know, back in the day, uh, we, we're, we're shifting this guy regardless, you know, because at the same time, uh, there's other stuff that comes into play. Uh, I understand there's some guys, some quote-unquote horses on the mound that they trust their stuff 100% of the time and, they feel like if I make this pitch, the ball is going to go this way. But there's certain hitters that you really have to do it. And I think um, you just talk to the guys and, and show them why, why we're trying to do this, why he needs to believe in, and, and you go from there. It's not an easy conversation, I bet. You know, I had it before, not at the big league level, but I had it, you know, in winter ball and, and – Sometimes they look at you like, no, no, it doesn't feel good. But then when they hit that ground ball into that into the shift, they're very happy. But obviously, when they hit that ground ball against the shift and they get an RBI, you know, a cheap hit or an RBI single because it's just a ground ball, well, you get those looks. But it's a give take situation, you know. And if you believe it, you're going to be fine. You get a lot of outs from those spots. But at the same time, there's certain situations. As managers, as coaches, you you doubt a little bit. You know, I brought up this example, you know, in the convention at the end to end up. I said, well, if, if it's a World Series, two outs, tie game, bottom of the seventh, tie series, uh, minute third, two outs. And it's a, a guy that you've been shifting the whole season. You've been shifting him the whole season. I mean, the whole series. And all of a sudden, there's minute third, two outs, and you're like, wow, should we shift this guy right here? Because I'm a big believer as a big as a big league hitter. If you want to go the other way, you go the other way. And I think that's the spot that a David Ortiz or a Mark Teixeira in the worst series with two outs with the game with the winning run at third base, they're going to be willing to go the other way. If they do that, can you live with yourself the rest of the offseason because you shifted that time? You know, that's a tough one right there. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's a fascinating question, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that's maybe <laughs> what they're thinking. Uh, I want to I want to turn real quick to, to baseball in Puerto Rico, and uh, you've run some teams in the winter leagues down there, and uh, recently named the general manager of the World Baseball Classic team. Uh, and so I'm curious, as you go about putting this team together, you know, what sort of data do you look at when you're when you're getting guys on the team for uh, the next WBC? To be honest with you, birth certificates and willingness willingness <laughs> to play in the tournament. That's the only data I have. Uh, you know, this is a, a tough tournament as far as, like, getting guys into it. Well, we, we don't have the problem in PR, you know, the, the three tournaments. We, we've done a pretty good job recruiting guys and, and guys willing to play. But there's certain situations that will come up, you know, uh, some rules. You know, if it's a first-generation player, second-generation player, just saying that, 
if your grandfather was born in Puerto Rico, can you play? Can you, you know, if you were born in the States, but your dad was born in Puerto Rico, can I play? And we got a few guys that, you know, they they got some Puerto Rican blood in them, you know, uh, Marcus Stroman, George, George Springer, Nolan Arenado. So that's the tough part. That's the data I have to pay attention to. And hopefully, you know, we can make a pitch and these guys can play for us. And you add those guys to to Lindo and Correa, Beltran, Rosario, Yari Molina. All of a sudden, you know, we have a pretty good team. So, you know, that's, that's the, the things that we pay attention to. After that, you know, with the bench, obviously, you know, you got to pay attention to the minor leagues because of the 28 guys are going to be at the big league level. So those are the tough decisions, you know, see who – who had a good season, you know, and start looking at, at the teams that we're going to play against. You know, if we play Team USA, who's the lefty out of the bullpen? You know, if they throw hard, then we start looking at guys that can hit fastballs, if not guys that can hit off-speed pitches. So those are the tough ones later on. But in the beginning, birth certificates and willingness to play, uh, willingness to play in the tournament. All right, Alex, I'm going to put you on the spot right now. You've got Correa and Lindor. Both have agreed to play for Team Puerto Rico. <laughs> Who's playing shortstop? Come on, <laughs> Come on man. That's, uh, you know what? As a GM, I just sent the guys. And Edwin Rodriguez, who managed the Marlins a few years ago, and he was the manager in the last tournament, he has to make the decisions, you know? I just give them, give them the players, and he has the tough ones, you know? But one thing for sure, um, you know, one of them is going to hit second, and the other one is going to hit third. And that's very important for us. Boy, I don't think you can go wrong. Uh, Alex, final question for you. Uh, I had, I had uh, Dodgers prospect Jose de Leon on a, a few weeks back also from Puerto Rico, and I put this question to him. Uh, why is it do you think that most of the best players and prospects coming out of Puerto Rico recently are hitters? Obviously, Correa, Lindor, the Molinas, and Beltrans. It seems like there's been fewer pitchers. Uh, is, is, is there something you can tell us about why that might be? Well, I think uh, growing up, you, you know, there's been a few pitchers you know, that have made an impact at the big league level, but not at the same level as Juan Gonzalez, Robbie Alomar, um, Carlos Baerga. So it's kind of like, you know, I, I bet in the States and all over the world right now, you know, the guy that you're following in the NBA is Steph Curry. You know, you want to be like him, so you, you just dribble and shoot three-pointers, you know. So as as young kids, you start looking up at, at, at these guys, the Yari Molinas, the catchers, you know, you got Yari, Benji. Benito, Sandy, so I want to be a catcher, you know, middle infielders, you know, and now with Lindor and Correa. Well, I don't want to be a pitcher. I want to be a middle infielder. So that's how it goes. But you know what? At the end, there, there's a few good pitchers coming up, De Leon, Barrios, Diaz, Jimenez. So hopefully, you know, after the tournament next year when they make an impact and hopefully we win the gold medal, well, there's there's a lot of kids out there that in, in, in back home that want to become pitchers because these guys – they made an impact in the WBC, and they're going to make, make a big impact at the big league level. Well, you, you mentioned some good names there, and I think, Matt, you picked Barrios as your AL Rookie of the Year on the show last week. I did. All right. Well, Alex, Alex Cora, thanks so much for your time. Uh, watch Alex on ESPN, and uh, I know we're all going to be paying attention to the Puerto Rican team in the WBC, which Alex will be putting together. Uh, Alex Cora, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Well, I think we really, I think we just talked to a future big league manager, right? Alex Cora played in the big leagues for more than a decade. He's bilingual. He's interested in metrics, uh, and he's running a team in Puerto Rico. Well, that's the resume. He's certainly building the resume. Yes, that is for sure. I, I really enjoyed how he mentioned uh, the Royals, and uh, I know neither of us picked the Royals in the Central, but they're still a fascinating team because he brought up Eric Cosmer, 
right? And so he talked about him in the sense that you need to be a faster first baseman than kind of the big sluggers of days gone by. And we saw that Eric Hosmer broke a record. He's got the fastest home in the first time of any first baseman um, in the StatCast era, which I thought was really interesting because it goes to show what he does on defense too. Yeah, and I think it, was, it wasn't just the fastest. It was like, he, it was 3.92 seconds. He was the first yeah. to break 4.1 of any yes. first baseman. Right. Um, and it, it gives you an interesting glimpse into why Hosmer is still a really valuable player, but he doesn't fit the the profile of the first baseman that have typically been valuable over the last Right, he's not, it's not 40 homers and 120 RBIs, yeah. but he's still been a very useful player. Exactly. So uh, I think we've see, actually seen a couple of interesting things. It's only been two days of the season so far. Well, Sunday, Monday, we're Wednesday now, so we're Wednesday. Okay, so a, a, anybody who's listening, we're taping this like as the Wednesday games are starting, so nothing we say counts for the Wednesday games, but leading up to that, uh, the thing that really stood out to me, and you, you tweeted this out, I think, the other day, Juan Ligaris, right? Juan Ligaris had all these arm issues over the last year or two. It took him six innings of the first game of the season to make a harder throw than he had all of last year. He hit 95.8 the other day. He only hit 95 once all of last season. That's a, that's a great sign. And it was a throw, it, it was, I won't say with ease, but it was, like, it was clearly instinctual. It wasn't like he needed like the full run-up and... He scooped it up, and it was just a very quick arm. It was it was impressive. Yeah, and you don't want to make too much of one throw, but last year, I don't know that it wasn't that he couldn't do it. He just didn't feel comfortable with the arm to, to try that. And now that he did after full offseason arrest, uh, that's great news for the Mets. And then I, I look at the Dodgers, and I look at Yasiel Puig. Yasiel Puig, to this point, has hit five batted balls this year. Exit velocities, 107.3, 106.8, 104.2, 101.5, and 101.1. I know those all sound like terrible radio stations. That's five balls hit over 100 miles an hour. That is a phenomenal sign for Yasiel Puig. Yes, five for five in the 100-mile-per-hour club. That's uh, Probably not going to last. But he was a guy we had talked about as kind of a, a bounce-back candidate, and that's a very good early sign. It's an extremely good sign because you don't do those things by accident. You can't accidentally hit a ball 107 miles an hour. Um, now, we also had one of, I guess, the hardest-hit home runs on record. I think the hardest-hit home run by someone other than Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, from last year? On StatCast record. Yeah. Carlos Gonzalez, 117.4 miles per hour, home run, uh, opening night against Zach Greinke. Against Zach Greinke. Bad night for Zach Only Greinke. The only player last year who hit a home run with a higher exit velocity was, was John Carlos Stanton. It's who always John Carlos Who did it twice. No one else did it. That's not, the, that's not even the only thing about that home run that is second only to John Carlos Stanton. It was the second lowest launch angle home run, so 14 degrees. And we've, we've always said this, like, zero is right back at the pitcher. 10 to 25 degrees is roughly the line drive zone. Uh, he hit that at 14 degrees, which basically means it's a line drive. So John Carlos Stanton, of course, had the only lower one. It was 13 and point something degrees, and I went back and looked at it against the Phillies last year. Unreasonable that it made it out of the park. It was on a straight line. Uh, but yeah, John, so Carlos Gomez, 117.4. Uh, last year, it would have been the seventh hardest hit, and uh, it's actually funny because last year he had the hardest hit out tied with Hanley Ramirez, 117 miles an hour, and that's at a range uh, 115 and above where MLB hit 774, and he hit into an out. Yeah, just from a pure aesthetic standpoint, there's fewer people that when they connect, it's sort of a a more majestic or impressive uh, feat than uh, Carlos Gonzalez. I, I don't want to make this comp, but I'm going to make this comp. There's there's sort of a Griffey element to it for Oh, me. we're making a Griffey comp. <laughs> I, I'm backing slowly away in the studio here. <laughs> Uh, longest home run of the year, not Giancarlo Stanton, even though he did hit an absolute mam- mammoth bomb last night, uh, Paul Goldschmidt. And, but I found this interesting. Paul Goldschmidt by .07 foot, so inches. I don't know if we're actually going to get to that. We've generally been rounding to the nearest foot, so we'd say 439, he and Trevor Story. Trevor Story. Trevor Story. One of Trevor Story's a dozen home runs from the first like three days of the season. But Trevor Story, I mean, this is interesting. You had mentioned him in a piece you wrote before the season of storylines to watch. 
I did. He had the highest uh, exit velocity in all of spring training. Granted, we don't have stack cats in every single park in spring training, so take that with a grain of salt. But and we have it in the park that the Rockies play. That helps, but their visitors come through that park as well. So everybody in Arizona came through that park. He, I mean, he was crushing the ball. There's, there's no way around it. So and the first couple of days of the season, I don't know if he's going to stick on, on track for 500 home runs or whatever. That seems unlikely, but I think it's interesting to see that that's actually carrying over into the season against real big league pitchers who are trying to get him out, and he's destroying the ball. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that suggests that maybe exit velocity is a metric that stabilizes pretty quickly. Or maybe, I mean, it's one of the things we'll have to keep tracking and keeping an eye on, but it's the kind of thing that maybe with a prospect we might be able to tell very quickly if they're... You'd, for, you'd, for real or not. You would think, right? Because it's not the kind of thing that it, it's you can do it by accident. Either you're doing it well or you're not. Uh, speaking of doing it well, Noah Syndergaard. I have to talk about I kind of wanted to dedicate the entire show to Noah Syndergaard. Uh, clearly fastest pitch, 99.9 miles an hour. 17 of the 25 fastest pitches this year are Noah Syndergaard. And I find that interesting just because it's it's fun to finally look at the fastest pitch leaderboard and not see Roldis Chapman. We had to put in the Chapman filter last year just because he had the top like 800 pitches or whatever. Yeah, I've, I've wondered if Syndergaard would, was a reliever, what he would Well, we've seen it. Dial he it he up. came guess, in in the playoffs. Yes, true. And he, he basically threw the ball 120 miles <laughs> an hour every single time. It's just, it's not right is what it is. Yeah, I mean, he had that one pitch. I mean, you and I were watching the game yesterday afternoon, 93, yeah. like to strike out. Kendris Morales, and it was, it was a with, with, a, with a break, and I was like, is that a cutter? Does he throw a cutter now? No. And it was like, it's a slider. He, he throws a slider harder than like 80% of pitchers throw their fastballs, which is just not right at all. He's a, he's a freak. He's fun to watch. He's, I think this is going to be, this is sort of, after this start, it sort of seems like this is kind of going to be his platform year where suddenly the league takes notice and fans take notice of just how freakish he is. You could say Matt Harvey's the third best starter on the Mets, and Matt Harvey's really, really good. Yes. Um, speaking of hard throws, outfield throws. Yeah, I, I almost wish you hadn't already looked at this because I know you know the answer. Who's got the hardest throw on record so far this year? 97.4 miles an hour, John Carlos. It's always John Carlos Stanton. Whenever you don't know the answer to something, just guess John Carlos Stanton. Uh, but so it's true. I actually looked at this when I saw it. I wanted to make sure it was legit. And uh, it was a, a sacrifice fly, so it actually set him up perfectly because he had time to get under it, a couple of feet back. He you know, got his momentum going in the right direction, and he's got a good arm. So 97.4 miles an hour right now is the leader from John Carlos Stanton. We saw another uh, really impressive throw last night from a player I did not expect to see it from, also in right field, Stephen Piscotti. Um, I did not see that. What did he get up to? It was like 94.8. That's impressive. Yes, it was, um, you know, this is one of those cool things that you sort of, players have these tools you don't even realize they do. You know, before StatCast, kind of all outfield throws, you sort of look the same, and you kind of knew who had a cannon, obviously. You know, there were certain guys, like, okay, it was clear. But some players, maybe if they didn't fit the profile of, of the um, the particularly athletic right fielder and Steven Piscotti, not a right fielder by trade, it surprised me to see him uh, dial that up. But he did to throw out the McCutcheon at the plate uh, from right. That's impressive. Uh, and since you took us to the St. Louis outfield, this is going to be our last fun fact, and I swear to this is real. The top distance covered by an outfielder, not just this year, but in the StatCast era, Matt Holiday, of all people. Not exactly who you'd expect. Well, I know, there, there's the explanation Explain the distance here. covered. Okay, so Matt Holiday has the record for distance covered, 174 feet. And you think to yourself, wow, that's really impressive. But wait a minute, Matt Holiday, they're kind of making him play first base. He's not as young as he used to be. Uh, this was on Sunday in the sixth inning. Frankie Cervelli hits a triple to left center. And if you look at the ballpark in Pittsburgh, there's a little bit of an angled outfield. So Matt Holiday goes to left center to try to get the ball. Ball hits the angled outfield, kicks right back towards the left field foul line, so he makes like a 40-yard degree angle, runs all the way back to get it. It is real data. It's not a bad data point. 
Uh, it's a little bit of a blooper, whatever, but that's going to stand, I think, for a long time. So yeah, so we're, but it's the caveat of, of didn't catch lo it. Long as yeah, on a ball that was not caught, like on last night, for example, caught. on a pop up down the right down the right field line to foul territory, Logan Forsythe, who was shifted, went like 126 feet right. to make the catch and, and, and caught the and, ball and caught the ball considerably <laughs> more impressive. <laughs> to, yeah, to, to Alex Cora's point, it was a significant shift. He was basically behind second place. So it was a very impressive play. It wouldn't have caught that ball if he wasn't shifted, right? Certainly not. And that, I'll be honest, the shifts, I think, f from a viewer standpoint, might be the most confusing thing. Because sometimes now, you see that, you know, you're watching the center field camera, and you see an infield at the back of their head, and you have to do a double take, because you think it's a base traditional baseball, you think, oh, that someone, a runner's on second base. But now, more than ever, you're constantly seeing the second baseman or shortstop in the frame. And you sort of have to figure out, wait, is that a base runner, or is that a defender? It's a fascinating new world that we live in. Uh, that's our show for this week. Thanks to our guest, Alex Cora. Thank you, Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. And uh, thanks for all the listeners, because I heard from a lot of you on Twitter. So we appreciate that. And give us a good ranking or review on iTunes if you would like. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. We will catch you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.